The Grancidio School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello, my name is Rick Gibson, and I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. And I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who's the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thanks, Rick. It's good to be here today. Well, the Dean's Executive Leadership Series has been pretty exciting this year. Uh, I think you've even been on the road. Tell us a little bit about some of the guests that you've hosted for this series. Well, we have six guests this year throughout the entire series and did decide to do a couple of those on the road. We started with Deborah Platt Majoras, who is the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, actually recently left the Federal Trade Commission, and did that in Orange County because of our wonderful alumni base there. And then another speaker in our series uh, will be um, Robert Simpson, who's the president and chief operating officer of Jelly Belly in Northern California. Again, another great alumni base. And then the others based here in Southern California, including a couple from the entertainment industry, Andy Bird of Disney. International and Bruce Rosenblum of Warner Brothers Television, and then of course Robert Eckert from the toy industry Mattel that we'll be listening to today in this podcast. Well, tell us about your interview with uh, Mr. Eckert. It's been kind of interesting times for them at Mattel. Yes, he came into Mattel at an interesting time several years ago when they were facing some real challenges in the marketplace. It's an extremely competitive industry. And then, of course, very recently this year, they've had all the challenges with their toy production in China. And so I think people will be fascinated by what he has to say and the way he's chosen to deal with those issues. So let me invite our listeners just to sit back and relax and to enjoy this interview with Robert Eckert, Chairman and CEO of Mattel Incorporated. Well, welcome to our podcast. Today we have with us uh, Mr. Robert Eckert, who is the chairman and CEO of Mattel Incorporated, who's joined us for our Dean's Executive Leadership Series. So, Bob, it's really a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be here. I'm going to give everyone a little bit of background on Mr. Eckert, and then we'll go right into questions and learn more about his uh, career and experience and certainly some of the things that are going on at Mattel right now. Um, Mr. Eckert, as I said, is CEO and chairman of Mattel Incorporated. Prior to that, he was with Kraft for many years, started there right out of his MBA program at Northwestern and served uh, there for 23 years in a variety of capacities, uh, a lot along the marketing lines, but ultimately ended up as president and CEO of Kraft uh, beginning in 1997 and then transitioned to Mattel in 2000. Uh, he has uh, had certainly some challenges at Mattel, but has also had some good successes and was named one of the top managers uh, of 2001 by Business Week. And so it's a pleasure to have you here, and we're certainly looking forward to hearing from you about uh, some of the work that you're doing at Mattel and kind of how your career has evolved over the years. Great. Let's start talking about your career. You went straight out of your MBA program at Northwestern to Kraft. Were there for 23 years, so a long career in one place, kind of moving up through the ranks, and then had an opportunity in 2000 to go to Mattel. Talk a little bit about kind of what led you to that decision to leave. Mattel was in a very difficult situation at that time, very challenging, and you're leaving a place where you'd been for a long time. What is it that motivated you at that point to make that kind of a dramatic change in your career? Well, it turned out to be one of those few life-changing bets that one makes, and I've been very fortunate and blessed that essentially every one of those bets I've made in life have worked out well for me. So in this case, I loved Kraft Foods. I had been at Kraft Foods my entire full-time career. Um, I had achieved a lot of things in Kraft Foods and had a lot of great friends. 
but I was ready for some sort of change, and Kraft at the time was um, owned by Philip Morris, and um, I was interested in staying in the food business, not ultimately working uh, for the parent company. And uh, it happened to coincide at the time from a personal standpoint where I either had to move right then or I wasn't going to move for a while because the deal I have with my children is where you start high school, you finish. Mm -hmm. I think that's a difficult time for anybody, that is the high school years, and I wanted to do everything I could to make it relatively easy for my children. So if they could you know, be positioned in high school and not have to relocate, that would be good. And in the year 2000, I was facing... Uh, a daughter who was just about to start high school, and then the way the arithmetic worked with her two younger siblings, I had 10 years of a child in high school. I've wow. now gone through, you know, eight and a half of those years. And you don't even have a whole lot of gray hair to show I, for it. That's I have amazing. A lot more than I used to. <laughs> um, and that's part of the toy business. But uh, you know, so it was just the perfect time. And uh, Mattel was a great opportunity and a great location here in Southern California. So we made the bet, and we're here, and we love it. Wait. It's interesting to see those kinds of transitions. And what was it about Mattel that made that opportunity the one at that time that was the right for, one for you? Well, I saw more similarities in Mattel and Kraft than a lot of others saw. Um, I, you know, they're both consumer goods companies. They're both built around brands, and the cash flow is generated by brands. They both uh, tend to have products that build on a relationship between a mother and a child. Mm -hmm. In the case of Kraft, it's around nutrition. And in the case of uh, Mattel, it's about education or entertainment. But moms are important to both companies. Um, obviously, kids are important to both companies. We, we shared the same retailers like Walmart and Target and other large retailers. Um, the difference was it was a different business. Uh, Mattel was in a little bit of financial trouble mm -hmm. at the time, so I saw an opportunity to, to do some things that I might not have experienced elsewhere. Um, and it was just a nice environment, so it worked out well. One of the opportunities that was a potential one for you was in about 2004. Your name was thrown around as a potential to take over leading Coca-Cola in that stretch. And so, again, another sort of major potential life situation. How do you, when you're, again, faced with that situation, uh, potential opportunities there, you at some point sort of pulled your name out of the hat for that. I don't know to what extent it was really in the hat to begin with. Yeah, I'm not but... sure it was ever in the hat. You know, the, the <laughs> there was a lot written about it. Right. There's a lot of written about it. It made good press, but I don't think it was actually true. <laughs> so maybe that's the point of that. But again, in that one, it was something you chose not to pursue or take advantage of. Were there any particular reasons for that? Or was it just the place you were with your family and then with where Mattel was that you felt like it was the right place to stay? Well, I'm not sure I was ever really a candidate yeah. for a job. But even, even when people outside of the companies talked about it, I said, you know, let me tell you about my situation with my kids. I made a deal with my kids where you start high school, you finish. And, and back in 2004, I'd have had uh, uh, two kids in high school and another mm -hmm. one on her way. And so for those, of, uh, for those who know me well, mm -hmm. know that I wasn't about to pick up and relocate. Mm -hmm. um, I love Southern California. My children have done well here. And, uh, boy, I don't know why anybody would leave this. Yeah, it is a wonderful place to live. I really appreciate the value you place on your family and your children as you're making those really important kind of life situations. Um, and I don't know that we always see that that grounding in, in family and those values with people in high-level business situations. How did that – has that always been a part of who you are in terms of your upbringing and everything? Why is that such an important thing for you personally as compared to what we might see in other CEOs? Um, it has been, and that's one of the things I in particular like about your school is mm -hmm. that it's a values-driven education. 
I happen to have been raised by the perfect parents, and I'm sure others say that, but I genuinely believe it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was given a set of values of, of uh, things important in life, um, like family, like religion, like service to the community and education and hard work. And uh, particularly as you look at some of the issues we faced in Mattel over the years, you know, a company's values and a person's values are tested in a crisis. You, you really, you, you can espouse values and talk about values, but in a crisis, you really find out who you are or who a company is or an organization is. And um, the, the upbringing I had um, as a child has served me well in life. So, yeah, there is nothing more important to me than family, and uh, I've enjoyed and been very fortunate to have a successful career but at the end of the day, I'll come and go. People aren't going to remember who I was or what I did at Mattel a year after I'm done with Mattel or Mattel's done with me. They are going to remember my kids long after I'm dead and gone. Um, and so my legacy in this world is through my children, really not through my job. So let's talk a little bit about that values piece as it relates to Mattel and some of the significant challenges that you face as CEO there. How do you embed in a company culture like that from your perspective and in your style as CEO? How do you embed in that culture the values that you want lived out in the way the company operates? We talk a lot about values. In fact, when I first joined the company, one of the first exercises we did was articulate a simple vision for the company that is to be world's premier toy brands for today and tomorrow, five or six strategies, and four or five values. And we wrote those things down as a new management team and tried to live them. But then I was at a, a leadership seminar that we do at Mattel uh, three or four years ago, and we got into a discussion at this uh, leadership seminar about the values of the company. And you know what surprised me is that none of us in the room, and these were 50 high-ranking people from around the globe at Mattel. It was a global leadership seminar. We were talking about the values, and none of us in the room could really recite Mattel's values that we had written down a few years previously, mm -hmm. including me. And to me, that was a bad sign. So I charged this group with go off, and as a special project, you all try and articulate values that really represent the company. And so it's it's unveiling the company's character as opposed to trying to embed a character or enforce a character on the company. And it's sure enough, these folks came back six months later. They'd done tremendous research with our employees all around the globe and came up with a simple set of things around the words play. You know, we're mm -hmm. a play company. Mm -hmm. We're about things for kids. And so we want to, we want to play fairly. We want to, we want to play and grow and play with passion and those sorts of things. And so all of a sudden, once we realized we were describing ourselves, um, it was just a lot easier to mm -hmm. think about values, and it worked well for us. And then it's much easier to embed those more fully and to respond if that's really our people understand it. In the they know those are the things that are unique to Mattel, mm -hmm. and and other companies could have taken our values page that we'd written years ago, and they could have put it on their poster, mm -hmm. and they'd have felt fine. I think the values we have today, it would be hard for uh, people other than Mattel to ascribe. Mm -hmm. 
Let's talk about some of the challenges that you faced at Mattel since you became CEO. And I think in the context of thinking about kind of those values as well and how those have sort of driven how you've chosen to respond to those. Let me go back to when you first became CEO. Uh, the company had bought the the learning company, I think, shortly before that or a few years before that. That was not a successful acquisition for Friday the company. The, Friday the 13th of 1999, <laughs> and there's a lesson in there for, for everybody listening. We should pay attention pay to those attention dates. Pay attention to Friday the 13th. <laughs> and so – Shortly after you came on board that acquisition, you sold the learning company. Uh, talk a little bit about that. There were job cuts that came because of that. That had to be a very difficult thing and, and a very sort of early uh, challenge in your tenure. Talk through kind of how you dealt with that, not only from a business perspective, but even in terms of the culture and how you deal with the impact that has on the people in the organization so soon after you become CEO. Um, well, the, the issue was a simple one. We were losing about a million dollars cash a day, and we don't have enough resources to continue losing a million dollars cash a day in perpetuity. And for those of your students who are studying the value of a company, if you think of it as the present value of future cash flows, what's the present value of a future cash flow of negative a million dollars a day? Um, it's not a lot, and the company was in serious trouble. So in my early days, I spent too much time talking to banks about trying to borrow some more money so we could keep things going for a while. So uh, in the end of the day, it was a pretty easy decision. We could no longer afford to keep uh, this thing afloat, and we had a choice of either shutting it down, closing it down somehow, giving it away, selling it for whatever we could. And despite the fact that we had paid a lot of money for the learning company right at the height of the tech bubble. Um, that bubble burst, and we mm -hmm. were the ones holding that asset, which uh, became worth uh, very little. We sold it quickly uh, for primarily future considerations. We didn't get a lot of upfront money, but it took a drain away from the company. Mm -hmm. It allowed us to refocus the company back on what we do well, which is the toy business and the brands in the toy business. So we moved away from the from the dark cloud overhanging Mattel and allowed the brands and the people who run the brands and the toy business to shine, and the company did relatively well. That company <clears throat> was purchased initially to try to help build your Internet presence and your online presence. So what have you done uh, since uh, selling the learning company to try to rebuild that from an internal perspective as opposed to acquisition? Well, we've partnered with folks instead of acquiring things. We don't, we don't think we need to own assets in, in a space, if you will, in order to be effective there. So we, don't, we do own assets in the toy business. We're the largest, most successful, most positive cash flow friendly now uh, toy business in the world. And we do toys well. We don't do things other than toys well. And as I was um, interviewing for the job, I, I studied the history of Mattel, and this wasn't the first time in the company's history where we went off and did things other than toys and failed. We've done video twice now, including the learning company. We owned a pet food company. We owned a movie studio. We owned a circus. Um, you know, it's all about, in, in somebody's eyes, diversification, and, and the toy business is fickle and tough, and we need to diversify, and we need to transfer our skills to some other industry. But when we make a big acquisition like that, it's never worked. So what we've talked about doing the last seven or eight years is why don't we run the toy business really well? And if we need to get into the Internet space, why don't we find people who are really good at that and partner with them and work with them as opposed to acquiring assets? 
Another challenge that you face, at, you, you have a wonderful background even at Kraft of sort of turning around divisions or products within that organization. And certainly Barbie, we'll talk Barbie for a few minutes. You can't talk about Mattel without talking about Barbie, I don't think. That has always been sort of a staple of Mattel, but it's had that product has had mm-hmm. its challenges in recent years and with some of the competition. So your expertise has always been, or much of it has been in turnaround. So how do you take a, a a brand like Barbie that has hit rough times and really get it back to where it needs to be? And, and what are some of the things that have been done there? And what do you see happening there moving forward? And I use that as an example yeah. there. I could probably pick others as well. Well, there's, there's good news and bad news about the Barbie story. Um, first of all, Barbie is still today the most popular toy in the world, the most popular toy here in the United States and the most popular toy anywhere in the world. And, and we was, have about 20 of them in our closet and at home, so good. we've helped you out a lot. I appreciate that. <laughs> and, and, and everybody who has 20, we always say, you know, you need that 21st and 22nd doll, <laughs> uh, which is frankly one of the issues with Barbie is uh, just the fact that uh, she has been around and been successful for a long time. The good news is when I joined the company, people said, well, Bob, the problem is it's the Barbie company. And it's really not the Barbie company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, even the largest toy, Barbie, in the largest market, the United States, um, represents well under 10% of the company's revenues or anything like that. And we've expanded the portfolio to do well in boys' toys with Hot Wheels and entertainment properties or infant and preschool with Fisher-Price or older girls with American girls. The bad news is... Okay, that's great, Bob, but the largest selling toy in the largest market is declining, and what are you going to do about it? And I think the direct answer to your question is we need to keep Barbie relevant. That's the key. Barbie is celebrating her 49th birthday, and and I know your audience knows well that Barbie is from Malibu. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Barbie was born 49 years ago here in Malibu. We need to know that, but we can never let little girls know that. They need to see Barbie as fresh and new every year. And so we're working to take Barbie beyond the doll business to include things like entertainment. Um, We have a series of DVDs. There's one out right now called Mariposa, which gives girls a different way to interact with her. We need to put Barbie on the web. We have a product line today called iDesign where a girl swipes cards and can upload them onto her PC and almost play like the old paper doll game now on a PC. Um, we have a, a website called barbiegirls.com, which has been described as the fastest-growing virtual world, um, certainly for girls. So it's more than just the plastic mm-hmm. doll, and particularly as girls get older. We see them leaving the doll franchise right. earlier, and we need to make that up somehow and fight what we in the toy industry call age compression. That is kids getting older, younger, or faster. We fight that by by moving with technology and those things. But Barbie's still a challenge for us. But it's taking that product and expanding the market in different ways and through new avenues, but building on the core brand Absolutely. that you had to begin with. And keeping the brand fresh and relevant. That's a real trick. Yeah. One of the strategies that you all have uh, taken on and has been somewhat successful is expanding globally uh, in terms of markets. I want to talk about globally two ways. One, we'll get to talking a little bit some of the challenges you've had with sort of manufacturing and products. But before that, just opening up those markets to your products, 
what are the best opportunities for you out there globally as you look around the world? And certainly that's where your growth has been uh, that's where all over of the our last growth years. Is. Yeah. You know, I, when I joined the company, uh, the business outside the U.S. was 29% of the company's revenues. Today it's 49% and growing. We set a, a goal in 2000 of having half the business come from outside the U.S. We'll get past that this year. And we've already said, okay, great, once we do that, we need to be at 60%. And we're seeing growth all over the world and across the portfolio. So it's been quite broad for us. Um, in, in more mature markets like Western Europe, um, we've done very well with our Fisher Price business and our boys' toys and expanding distribution there. We've had a lot of growth in what we think of as developing markets, particularly Eastern Europe and South America. Middle classes are growing. Sophisticated retailers are moving into those places. Um, they're very good markets for Mattel with a growing toy business, and we have the infrastructure there. And then we have the real emerging markets like China and India, very small markets for us today. But 50 years from today, we'll be talking about those as important markets. And we're setting up the foundation there. We're trying not to get ahead of ourselves financially so we end up with a big write-off someday. Rather, our business model is to crawl, then walk, then run. So right now when we talk about China, in fact, I was talking to an investor the other day, said, oh, I was in China. You're doing very well there. I said, let me guess. You were in Shanghai. <laughs> Our China business, we're doing well in Shanghai, but that's China for us right. today. And so, uh, you know, over the years we'll expand, but we want to first do well in Shanghai, and then we want to do well in Beijing, and then we'll move to other cities. But we're seeing good opportunities for global expansion. Obviously, the very public challenges you face from the global side of things is related to the, the issues with the product recalls and the manufacturing in China. And what I kind of wanted to hear from you is to talk about that from both an internal within Mattel perspective and then maybe a bit more externally on kind of the public PR side of that. I would be interested to hear your uh, view on, as that issue arose, um, how you address that internally. You know, what did you do with your leadership team? How did you um, make the decisions you did? What what sort of influenced your decisions to say, this is how we're going to respond to that? And kind of what were the processes internally, sort of before the public saw what happened, that led you to make the decisions that you did? Well, the interesting thing today is um, with the advent of um, webcasts and 24-hour news channels around the world, there isn't a lot of time between when you internally do something right. and when the world knows. There's another lesson here, though, that I, I believe I first heard of the first product issue on Friday, July 13th. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a, a consistent theme coming those through this Friday talk about Friday the 13th. And, 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 not good and for you Your all. students need to, need to stay <laughs> home those days. At least I do. I don't know about everybody else. Take a vacation. Um, but we're fortunate. In that we have a document at Mattel. We're planful people, even though the toy business is fickle and it's a little rock and roll and it's all new products. And sometimes I say it's fashion for four-year-olds. Despite all that. We are planful people, and we have a crisis communication plan. Literally, I have a copy on my desk. It's 114 pages long. So when the proverbial stuff hits the fan, you know who to call and what to do. We are a global company. We operate in 150 countries, um, and, and you need to be able to have a process in place to communicate quickly, which we did. So we met as a team um, starting probably in late July through almost Christmas time last year, we met every day, seven days a week, twice a day, 7 a.m. in the morning, 4 p.m. in the afternoon, um, because our Asian counterparts would be either waking up or mm -hmm. going to bed when we were doing the opposite, and we'd sort of hand off things. It was important to get the right people um, at the table, which we did quickly. We had a consistent team, and we worked on it together uh, as our number one priority all summer long. 
Um, but it was because we had a plan in place. We, we didn't accurately predict what the crisis might be, but it was nice to know that, that when we needed to go to work, we, we knew what to do. So on the external side, um, there clearly were significant portions of that that, that uh, required you to speak publicly, to be visible publicly, and you did that quite extensively, probably more so than most CEOs do when they're faced with that kind of a situation. Uh, how much of that was sort of dictated by the, the plan versus that's just your kind of style for doing it? Uh, and I think there was an article in the L.A. Times that sort of compared you with other CEOs at the time in a very positive light uh, because of the public way you address that, the, the way in which you were sort of upfront about what happened. So talk a bit about sort of that being your personal style versus the culture of Mattel or, or how that well, played out and why it, that was so important yeah, to you. It's not my personal style. I'm down deep a, a shy, introverted type person, so I don't get up in the morning looking forward to getting grilled on, by uh, news anchors. Um, but that's what the company needed at the time. And, and you know, there were a couple of lessons that, that we thought going into this when it be, we knew it was going to be a big deal. It was newsworthy. Um, and so we had a couple of principles, one of which is, you know, I spoke largely for the company publicly. People want to hear from the leader of the company. They don't want to hear from the third or fourth or fifth person in the company in a, in a situation like this. They want to know who the leader is and what he's doing about this. So I publicly apologized to every audience I could. You know, parents shouldn't have to worry about toys or the safety or quality of their toys. They shouldn't have to worry about toys, period, and they shouldn't have to worry about Mattel toys in particular ever. So I apologize to people all around the world for having to waste their time on our problems. Then the second thing we wanted to make sure is that people knew what happened, what toys were involved, because if we were recalling toys, we want those toys back, and widespread publicity is good for that. Mm -hmm. And third, most importantly, we needed to be able to tell people um, what we were doing to prevent future occurrences, so to fix this problem, so to fix these issues so they didn't happen again and we didn't have to bother them again. Um, so there were re two governing principles. One, I needed to have those messages and deliver those messages to constituencies all over the world. And secondly, we wanted to make sure people knew that, you know, this isn't about money. This is about doing the right thing. And so I'm here to tell you what we're doing, and uh, either through the media or sometimes talking directly to uh, parents through um, webcasts that we did at, at Mattel.com or other things, I, I had the opportunity to reach out directly to people. Another piece of that uh, time frame and, and some of those issues was kind of Mattel accepting full responsibility and not blaming the Chinese manufacturers. Talk some about that. And again, not necessarily what we might have expected from an American company to do. Um, and how that has played out in terms of your relationships with uh, certainly the manufacturers in China, but even globally as you uh, operate around the world. Well, I've said, you know, countries don't make, you know, shirking responsibility for something like this. It just doesn't do a lot of good. People want to know what happened and what you're going to do about it. And we tried to explain what happened. It turns out that um, had some manufacturers just followed the rules we gave them to make our products, we wouldn't have had this problem. So, you know, th there is a source of anger there in that, that the rules were fine. Mm -hmm. uh, some folks chose not to follow the rules, either deliberately or inadvertently. The rules weren't followed. We wouldn't have had this problem if everybody would have followed the rules. So we've changed things to better ensure that people follow the rules. So I'm disappointed with that. But I don't blame a whole society or, you know, some, some group for that. So as you look back over your, I guess, what, six or seven years now at uh, Mattel since 2000, you've been through a lot of 
interesting experiences and some very challenging ones as well. What would you say are, you know, one, two, three things that you've learned most through that and maybe how your leadership style has evolved based on what you, the experiences you've had at Mattel in the last few years? Well, one related to what we went through last year is just the um, a recognition of the different constituencies that are important um, to a business. It's not just about quarterly earnings for Wall Street. Profits are important, but I've learned that some people have an insatiable appetite for profits, and there's nothing you can do to, to make them happy. And, and they are important. That is how we generate the funds to continue to grow and stay in business and do well. But we need to balance people and the planet and sustainability and how we do things. We need to have other constituencies like governments and regulators around the world and and parents and customers. I have a broader view of business today than I've ever had, and I, I'm not sure I was all that myopic five or ten years ago, but, but I, I, I feel a much larger responsibility to more constituencies today than I have in the past. You mentioned issues of sustainability, and this is certainly an area that, as a business school, we're paying much more attention to, and our students um, are far more engaged in issues around social and environmental responsibility and sustainability. And I know that that is something you have a, I think, a, a, a statement about sustainability at Mattel. You've put together a corporate responsibility organization. Talk some about where you're going with that and why you think that's so, so important for Mattel. Well, we've done a couple of things. Um, one, last year, uh, partly in response to the product issues that we faced, we put together a set of groups that were at various organizational locations around the company and put them into one group called corporate responsibility with a head who reports directly to me. So instead of having a group work in one area on these sorts of issues, maybe a product quality group and another group uh, working on environmental issues and another group perhaps working on communications issues or government regulation issues, we put them all together under one leader so we can coordinate activities. I think that's a step. Number two is we started issuing uh, what today would be called sustainability reports in 2004. We issued one then. We issued one in 2007. We're the only toy company to do so. Um, and now we've done it twice, to, to give a public report, just as we do a public annual report of financial results, a public report of where we stand with very con various constituencies, with employees, with investors, and other stakeholders. Um, and I think that's an important step. I absolutely agree with your question that as I talk to today's young people, they get it. And they want to know people of that age group who also happen to be, you know, and many times parents. So they're my most important constituency. Um, they want to know whether we get it. And and certainly uh, the, the people in my generation are coming to this party a little bit late. And we want to be at the forefront. We are a kid's company. We are, uh, we like to think of sort of modern company. And we want to make sure people understand whether they're investors or parents and consumers. We want to make sure they understand that we get the importance of this stuff. This week, we're our, we have a student group of Net Impact, and this week we're actually um, recognizing they've put together a social enterprise week, and so we're spending the entire week with all kinds of events and speakers and activities. That's so great. I know that your insights on that, of both here on our podcast and at our Dean's Executive Leadership Series a bit later today, will be uh, appreciated by them as they think about these issues and how they sort of manage this whole issue of making a profit in the right kind of way That's right. in the organization. There's nothing wrong with making a profit, mm -hmm. and I don't apologize for making a profit. But there, there is an opportunity, I think, at times to make it in the wrong way. 
And, I, and that's why I think the word sustainability is important, because mm-hmm. if you make it in the wrong way, it's not going to last very that's long. Right. So uh, sustainability, whoever coined that phrase for all of this, I think was a smart choice. And, and they, they become sort of an admirable, admirable goal then, as opposed to something people feel compelled to do. So as you look ahead uh, in your time with Mattel, what are you most excited about? You know, what what are you looking forward to? What are the biggest opportunities you think that are out there? You've been through some rough times, and so I'm sure you also want to look forward and say, what's the good good work that's ahead, and what do we really need to pay attention to? It's a great company. Uh, you know, we're very fortunate. The, the founders of of Mattel, who lived here in Malibu for for many years. Um, built a great company starting, uh, you know, almost 60 years ago. And we're fortunate to have great brands and we have uh, terrific development people come up with great toys. And it's a nice business. It's not the easiest business. It's all new products. 55% of all toys are sold between Thanksgiving and Christmas every year. It's a global supply chain. Um, You know, it's a fickle four-year-old consumer. But somehow or another, we figured out over the last six decades how to do that better than anybody else on the planet. And so one of my goals is to not get distracted with the, so let's go do something else. Mm -hmm. We need to stick to our knitting, run the toy business well. Um, We've got great people that work in the toy business. It's a fun company. And uh, every single year we, we have a thing that I've now coined the early fall jitters, which is it's around September or October um, we've been making toys all year. That big inventory pile is starting to move from us to our retail customers. They're looking at this big pile of toys. Something comes along that we all conclude, my goodness, there may not be a Christmas this year. Um, we had a port strike one year, and all the toys mm-hmm. were coming. We had 9-11 one year, mm-hmm. which shut down our whole economy here right in the midst of our peak shipping season. Um, we've had last year's product recalls. There's something every year. And then, sure enough, Christmas does come every year. And, and people buy toys. People buy toys every year, <laughs> and they tend to buy even more toys than they did the prior year. And we go in February, we go, man, there was a Christmas, and we start all over again. So right now we're in the midst of figuring out 2008 and what products are going to work for 2008. I have no idea what, what will create the early fall jitters this <laughs> September or October. But having done this now for six or seven years, I, I know that something will come along and something will make us anxious. But at the end of the day, it'll probably be a pretty good year for the toy business. So that Grinch that steals Christmas never really does it after Hasn't all. Yet. Dr. Seuss had it right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> As we bring the podcast to conclusion, um, we certainly have a lot of our students and alumni who uh, probably aspire to move into senior level positions. Some of them are already in those positions or into CEO positions. Um, my sense is from things I've read about you, you didn't really ever think that's what you would do or that's necessarily right. aspire to that. Right. So, uh, But you've done it uh, on a, a couple of occasions. What insight or advice would you give to folks that might have interest in that that you've learned through your experience and in, in maybe getting there and not really ever having intended to uh, that might be helpful to them in in building their careers and being successful? Well, well, while I am a planful person, I never really spent much energy planning my career. Um, but I've been fortunate. I've had a good career. Um, my father turns 91 next week, and he's a retired dentist. So when I was a kid, we didn't talk about debits and credits at the, den- at the dinner table. We talked about 
temporomandibular occlusal planes and those things I now remember about dentistry. Almost as exciting as debits and credits. Almost as, <laughs> almost, almost as exciting, but not quite. Um, so uh, I got into business. I've enjoyed business. I've been guided by uh, a work ethic, which I think is still important. You know, Ray Kroc, who founded McDonald's at about the age I am today, said, uh, luck is the dividend of sweat. Or uh, Louis Pasteur said, uh, chance favors the prepared mind. I, I admire uh, people who stay in school. I especially admire people who give up their careers temporarily to go back to school. Uh, and then I think um, there is some benefit uh, to, to working hard, to taking advantage of opportunities you're given. Um, and there is an awful lot of luck involved here. You know, the, the, the right position has to open at the right time, and, boy, the next thing you know, you're there. Not unlike the conversation you, you and I had on the way walking mm -hmm. over here, well, you know, one day you woke up and all of a sudden you're here dean of this great school and this you know, magnificent campus. Um, those opportunities come along, and you've got to be prepared to capitalize on them. Well, it's been such a pleasure visiting with you. We really appreciate you sharing your insights and uh, your experience with us. And um, as you mentioned, we focus a lot on uh, the values piece of who we are and wanting to develop value-centered leaders. And I certainly think today that we heard from a value-centered leader and that you've exemplified that and uh, really tried to lead with integrity and consistency. And so we appreciate you being a part of our Dean's Executive Leadership Series and uh, speaking with us today. Thank you. Well, Linda, that was a fascinating interview. Well, we had a wonderful time with Robert Eckert, and I know our listeners will enjoy very much what he had to say and certainly had a good time with him when he was at our Dells event. I'm sure that's right. Well, tell us who's scheduled next. Next up is Robert Simpson, the President and Chief Operating Officer of Jelly Belly Candy Company. So I expect that to be a very tasty discussion. Yeah, so free samples for the guests, do you think? I think that will be the case. Oh, okay, that sounds terrific. Well, I'd like to uh, thank our listeners for joining us today and to invite them to hear more podcasts at bschool.pepperdine.edu. Uh, until next time, this is Rick Gibson. Thank you for listening. Why is Pepperdine University's Grazio Dio School of Business and Management considered the smart way for working professionals to earn an MBA. Well, first and foremost, Forbes magazine ranks Pepperdine's fully employed MBA program among the top 20 business schools for return on investment. So financially, it's very smart. And Pepperdine's program is built around real-world curriculum, not just theory, so students can apply what they learn in class at the workplace the next day. So now, does earning an MBA from one of the most highly regarded business schools in the world sound like a smart move to you? Then call 1-800-933-3333 for more information. That's 1-800-933-3333. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management. The smart business decision. And Pepperdine also offers a top-ranked executive MBA program.